Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, God's word says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in awe that you would love sinners like us. And as we look at this story, I ask that you would help us to grow more in our realization of our sin and more in our realization of your love that covers it all. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Dave Harvey tells the story of the backwoods man who takes his family to the big city for the first time. As they're walking the streets, they're mesmerized by the great skyscrapers, and the family follows the crowd through some strange, slowly spinning glass doors. As they emerge in this huge indoor area, the mother and the daughter stop to marvel at a gliding silver staircase. The father and son move further into the building, and in a few minutes, they're standing in front of a large wall filled with several pairs of shiny metal doors and with lighted buttons next to each one. As they gaze at some blinking numbers above the door, a bedraggled old woman with a red shopping bag approaches the set of doors nearest them. As if by magic, the doors slide apart, revealing a small, empty, wooden-paneled room. The woman steps in and the doors slide closed behind her. The father and son think to themselves, what's happening in there? Why would she want to go in such a tiny room? After a minute or so, the doors magically open again. But out now steps a beautiful, energetic woman who brushes past them, red shopping bag in hand. Without taking his eyes off the elevator, the dad leans down and whispers to his boy, Son, go get your mother. (laughs) Well, here this story is depicting the way I think many of us like to think. And that is, you know, we have some problems and other people have some problems. And what we need to do is we need to change the externals in our life. 
We need to get some of these external things to change. And once we do that, then everything will be better. You know, this man wanted his wife to change. So, hey, if we could just make her energetic, younger, beautiful, that's what will happen. Except what we really need to change in our life is not just some external things, not just some external actions. We need to be changed from the inside out. And here this morning we have a story in which Jesus encounters two people. And one person is quite sure of himself because he has all the externals in life right. He has everything externally the way it should be. And yet there's this other person, this woman, who externally has everything wrong. And yet, when she comes to realize that internally she can be made new, Jesus says she's the one who is welcome and has peace with God. She realizes that in Christ she has forgiveness. And as we look at these stories, the story, it really brings out three amazing truths about who Christ is. In verses 36 to 43, we see that Jesus is the knowing prophet. Then in verses 44 to 49, that he's the forgiving savior. And lastly, in verse 50, the transforming peacemaker. Well, if you were here last week, or you can look at the verses before, you'll see that many of the Pharisees rejected Jesus. But we see in this story that not all of them did, because here is a man who has invited him to his house to have him over for a dinner, and he has some interest in him. Now, in this story, we see that this is more than an ordinary meal. Daryl Bach, who is a commentator, notes three things that shows this would have either been a great banquet meal or a Sabbath meal, both which have been special occasions. The first sign of this is that rather than sitting, they're all reclining, and you've probably seen pictures of this in the ancient times where they would lean in towards the table and their feet would go out behind them well second because there's this semi-expectation that their feet would be washed it leans toward the idea of this being a special meal and third if this was a banquet or special sabbath meal the doors would have been left open so that others could come in like this woman and listen to the conversation of those at the meal now, in their culture, eating a meal with someone showed some level of acceptance of them. That's why the religious leaders were so shocked that Jesus would eat with people like tax collectors and sinners. Because they think if Jesus eats with them, that means he's condoning their sin. And so here, the fact that this Pharisee would even let Jesus in is showing some level of interest and curiosity. On the flip side... I think this shows us that Jesus was not necessarily prejudiced against the religious leaders. He's welcome to even call them to faith, call them to follow him. Well, then in verse 37, Luke wants to grab the writer's attentions. So he says, behold, he wants to say, look, something important is going to happen. And here, dramatically, this woman of the city who's known as a sinner comes to the meal. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. It could refer to her being a prostitute. It could mean something else. But whatever it is, clearly in the Pharisee's eyes, she's not someone who you should be around or you want to be near her. She's unworthy because of her actions. And yet, though the woman knows she's not going to be welcomed by some, she knows that Jesus is eating there, so she comes. But she doesn't come empty-handed. She comes with this alabaster of ointment. Alabaster stones were soft and they could be hollowed out or carved so that you could put ointment in them. And here she brings this fragrant ointment that she'll use. But then it says, as she goes, she stands behind Jesus because he'd be reclining, leaning into the table. She's down by his feet and she begins to cry. Now the word for cry is very strong. It's actually a word sometimes used for rain showers. You know, this woman has completely lost it. 
You know, you may be like this, I can be like this at times, where you know an emotional moment's going to come, and you have to speak or say something, and you're, okay, I'm going to stay in control, I'm not going to lose it. And then that moment comes, and you just, you can't control yourself. You ugly cry, there's nothing you can do, you're just overwhelmed. Well, here she is, she's now in the presence of Jesus, and she's so overwhelmed that tears are flooding down her face, a torrent of tears. But she not only weeps, but as the tears fall, falling on Jesus' feet, she then undoes her hair and begins to wipe his feet. Now, every culture is different, but you have to understand, in their culture, for a woman to let down her hair was very immodest. It was even a reason that you could give to get a divorce. And But this woman is saying, I care so much about him that I will take public shame to honor him. And so... She begins to wipe his hair. And not only that, she kisses his feet. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair, and she anoints his feet with oil. Now, maybe she first kind of slowly came into the room. No one noticed. But by this point, there's no way everyone is not now staring at her as she uncontrollably cries and makes this scene. And so the question is, what should we think of her and her actions? Well, the Pharisee is very clear what he thinks, because he thinks to himself, well, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know what the type of woman this is, and he definitely wouldn't allow her to be around him. You know, he might even be revolted. He might be thinking, is that woman, by letting down her hair, trying to do what I think she might be doing? That's ridiculous. That's scandalous. And Jesus is just going to sit there and let her do it? What's going on? Well, Jesus, though, responds directly to the Pharisee, calls him by name, Simon. Well, Simon then responds, teacher, showing some respect for Jesus. And Jesus tells him this story. Two people owe money. One owes 500 denarii and the other owes 50. Now, a denarii in their culture was a day's wage. So one person owes a little over a year and a half worth of money, and the other owes about two months, or 10%, or one-tenth. But not only do they both owe money, they both are unable to repay it. And yet then the story takes a twist because though they can't repay it, the moneylender just cancels both of their debts. Now there's no hint that the debtors <laughs> did anything at all. It was purely the moneylender's generosity, his grace, that allowed the debt to go away. Now canceling their debt is astonishing. You know, this isn't the type of thing moneylenders do. You know, just imagine tomorrow if we found out First Bank just canceled 50 people's home loans. Well, they'd get 500 home loans by the end of the day. Hey, I want to be at that bank, the bank that cancels loans? Let's go there. And that's people's thoughts. Well, look, if someone's just going to cancel debt, people are going to abuse it. You can't really just cancel someone's debt. There has to always be a cost to debt being canceled. And so here, Simon is thinking, well, you can't just let a woman like this come in free. That's scandalous. So that's not going to work. But then Jesus asked him, which of them will love the moneylender more? And you may have noticed Simon's half-hearted response. Well, I suppose. Was there any supposing to it? Well, it's the one who was forgiven more. It's obvious. Who is going to love more? Now, maybe you notice Jesus' response to Simon is a little ironic. Because Simon supposes, look, if you're a prophet, you can know what people are like. But he only thinks that, and Jesus knows exactly what Simon is like, because he is able to respond to what he's like by answering him with this story. 
The thing is, Jesus agrees with Simon's hypothesis. If you're a prophet, you can read people. And he goes, yes, that's true. But then he denies the conclusion. And the conclusion is, if you know people and you know that she's a sinner, then you won't want to be around her. And he thinks the only way to be around sinners, Simon does, is to condemn them or condone their sins. And Jesus is showing, look, it's neither condemnation nor condoning their sins. It's me canceling their sins for them. He's saying grace cancels debt. You know, Simon wants justice, but Jesus wants to show grace. But Jesus is also calling Simon to ask not only what type of person Jesus is, he's having Simon put the mirror up and look in and go, what type of person am I? Because you may have noticed in the story, Jesus didn't tell of one debtors, he told of two. And he's wanting Simon to realize he's a debtor, he's a sinner. Not only that, but his sins are so great, it's a debt he cannot pay back. Now Simon would have been shocked. Me? I can't do enough? I can't do enough external things to pay off my debt? I'm a moral righteous guy. I'm a Pharisee. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm set apart as holy. And yet he's telling Simon that all those external things do not pay off your debt of sin. And Jesus is even now calling us. Have we recognized that we need forgiveness of sins? That we can't do enough for forgiveness? So Jesus doesn't contradict the verdict that this woman is a sinner. In fact, he agrees with it. He'll say her sins, saying the real, are real. However, rather than denying the verdict of sinner, he denies that the judgment can only be condemnation of her. Rather, he says, I will take it for her. Now, today, as we go around in our society, less and less do people use the word sinner and sin. Those are bygone words, it seems. And yet we all have standards. We all have codes and morals that we think others should live by. And we have to ask, how do we respond when people break our moral code? Is there a way back or is there only condemnation? Well, Jesus continues, though, because he shows not only does he have the prophetic powers to see what people are like, to discern who they are, he's also the forgiving Savior. And that's what we see in verses 44 through 50. Because Jesus then turns to the woman and says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Well, I mean, that's one of those questions that's kind of like, well, yes, I see her. I mean, everyone's looking at the woman. How could you miss this woman? She's attracted all attention to herself. But Jesus is asking Simon to look past, do you literally see the woman, to how do you see the woman? All Simon sees is an unworthy sinner who should not be near them. And yet Jesus gives three contrasts showing why actually the woman is welcome with God right now and Simon is showing he is not. Well, first, Jesus says he entered at Simon's house, but... Simon didn't even give him water for his feet. Now, this wouldn't necessarily have been expected of a host, but it would be a very generous and kind thing to do. They all walked around on dusty streets. They all had sandals. And as you sit down to a meal, sure would be nice to take your sandals off, wash your feet, be cool and refreshed. And yet, though Simon didn't even give a basic courtesy, this woman has washed his feet with her hair. I mean, just imagine the dust and grime... When we walk on paved streets, 
when you take your sandals off and then going and taking your hair and wiping someone's feet. This is love that is beyond anything that Simon has done. Well, second, not only did she wash Jesus' feet with her hair, she's kissed him over and over on his feet. But Simon, he didn't even give the customary, I'm a friend, I kiss you on the cheek. Even today, if you go in the Middle East, men will kiss each other on the cheek as they greet each other. We are friends. But Simon didn't give him that courtesy. Third, Simon hasn't blessed Jesus by anointing his head with oil. Again, Simon didn't have to do this, but this would show some respect, some love for Jesus. And yet this woman has anointed Jesus' feet, not with the cheap oil that Simon might have used, but this expensive ointment on his feet. And then Jesus draws this conclusion in verse 47. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven her. Now, are forgiven is a perfect tense verb for all you grammar nerds out there with me. You know, perfect tense verbs it's a, are important because they're an action that has happened in the past, but they have ongoing results into the present time. And that's significant because Jesus is saying, look, her sins were forgiven in the past, but we're seeing the result of that in the present right now. He's it's not just they're forgiven now. Now, how did this happen? When did she have her sins forgiven? Well, if you read the Bible, there's lots of stories like this where they only give us the essential details, so we don't know. Did she realize the forgiveness of sins as she heard Jesus say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Was she on the crowd, in the crowd where Jesus gave the sermon on the plain, and she heard about a God who doesn't return Hatred for enemies, but he gives love. Who doesn't give condemnation, but gives mercy. Did she believe then? Did she hear others? Other times, her friends who were tax collectors and sinners, and when Jesus accepted them, go, oh, he'll forgive me too. Well, we don't know. But whenever it was, at some point, she came to realize that she was a sinner. And yet Jesus was going to cancel her debt. You know, unlike Simon, Jesus didn't condemn her, nor did he condone like many would today. You know, sin is real and it's deadly. But Jesus does something different than we expect. He cancels their sin. And then Jesus says something that's shocking. He says, her sins are forgiven for she loved much. So is Jesus saying that we have to have lots of love for him in order to be saved? Well, at first glance, it may appear that way. But that is not at all what Jesus means. Because if you look down at verse 50, Jesus tells her very clearly, your faith has saved you. you know, in verse 47, Jesus is saying her love for him was evidence that she was saved. That she was completely and only saved through Jesus. But saving faith in Jesus never leaves us where we are. It transformed her into this loving woman who did all these acts of love for Jesus. You know, it's interesting. She never says a word in this whole story. But you could say her silence and her actions spoke a thousand for her. We even again remember the story of the two debtors. It was the man who realized they had the greater debt who loved more. And that's what Jesus is saying. The woman's love for Jesus shows that she realizes she had a great debt before God. A debt that she could not pay off. 
You know, as John says in 1 John, she loves because he first loved her. And so in response to that great forgiveness, she is showing this lavish love to Jesus, which shows her forgiveness of sins. And this basically, it's the response of her faith. But Jesus is wanting to show more than that because he's also wanting Simon to examine himself because he ends verse 47 by saying, the one who has been forgiven little loves little. He's wanting Simon to realize, well, look, you've loved me very little. Now, I think at this point, Jesus' analogy breaks down a little bit because I don't think he's saying Simon actually realized he was a sinner. Simon is being shown as someone who's morally upright in and of himself. He thinks that he doesn't have a debt. He'd be shocked by such a statement. Simon is proud, who thinks that by himself, he's morally upright, and he shouldn't be around people like this woman. Yet God has always shown mercy, forgiveness, and grace to the humble. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Not the proud who think others should tremble before them, but the humble who realize in trembling that their sin is a barrier to God. Well, Jesus then in verse 48 turns and talks to the woman for the very first time, and he tells her her sins are forgiven. And like the Pharisee who questioned amongst themselves, this caused the people to question among themselves. Well, who is this who can forgive sins? You know, he did not proclaim like a prophet, God offers forgiveness to you. He said on his own authority, your sins are forgiven. In Luke 5, Jesus told a paralytic his sin was forgiven. And in both places, the question gets arise, who is this who will forgive sins? Because only God can forgive sins. And we've noted that this whole section kind of hinges on John the Baptist's question of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And in response, Jesus has healed a centurion's servant from afar. He's brought a dead man back to life. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's done all these things. And now he even says he has the authority to forgive sins. And he's wanting, he's boldly declaring by his actions, yes, he's the Messiah and he has come. Daryl Bach aptly writes, Either Jesus is a significant figure commissioned by God for this task, or else he is extremely deluded, presumptuous, even blasphemous. There is no middle ground. Jesus is either God who could forgive sins, or he's a blasphemer. You can't have it either way. But not only is Jesus a knowing prophet and a forgiving savior, for he's also a transforming peacemaker. Because the story ends with Jesus telling the woman in verse 50 that her faith has saved her. And so she can go in peace. You know, her actions reveal that she's now saved and has peace with God. You know, notice though how Jesus transformed this woman. Jesus' forgiveness of her that she previously experienced turned her into a new woman. 
The love God had for her transformed her into a loving woman as seen by the actions she did for Jesus. And thus Jesus concludes, you can go in peace. Not go in shame. Not go because we're kicking you out. Go in peace. And Jesus is asking us, do we know that peace as well? It's not like her past was no longer there, but it had been canceled. So what do you do when your mind replays your past that you wish you could erase? When you think up those things that you hope no one ever finds out about, do you have peace? What about when you have things in your life and you hope desperately that no one ever learns of them? Where do you turn? Well, does it come from doing more things to outweigh those things? So if they ever find out, well, at least I've done all this other stuff. I'm a very good person. That's what Simon was doing here. And yet Simon the Pharisee was too proud to think that he needed such things as forgiveness. Jesus is showing that true forgiveness comes only from him. Yes, he's a prophet. He knows fully. He knows our past. He knows our thoughts. He knows the desires of our heart. And yet, rather than Simon, he doesn't condemn us because he knows all. He cancels our debt by taking it on himself. Thus, we can have complete forgiveness and real peace. But I wanted to end by kind of thinking about this for a while, because sadly, while many Christians will say, yes, this is wonderful, what I need to be saved What people need to be saved is realize their sin and they need to trust in Christ. I think sadly, many Christians then go astray in one of two ways. You know, you may have heard of Martin Luther talking, the great reformer of a drunken peasant who the night was over at the tavern and his friends are trying to help him up on his horse. But as they help him up, he's a little too tipsy and he falls over on the other side. So then they go the other side and they... Help him back up. But as one leg swings over, he doesn't have enough control and he goes the other side. And what this is, is Christians often can't get in the middle, which we would call the gospel, but we keep falling to one side or the other of law or license. So the first error we make in regard to sin is that of license. We think, well, look, since Jesus says your sins are canceled, well, what he's doing is he's condoning sin. I can go do whatever I want. I have now free license to do whatever. And yet, that's what the Pharisees are afraid of. Well, no, no, no. If you just go around forgiving people of sins with no cost, well, they're just going to go sin. And yet, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not condoning sin. He cancels our sin, and then he calls us to a new life of following him. We saw this just a few weeks ago. Luke six forty six. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Following him as Savior doesn't mean... He's condoning however you want to live. More than that, Jesus is saying, look, if you really know forgiveness, you're going to be changed like the sinful woman and you won't want to continue in the things that caused him to be put on the cross in the first place. However, that's only one side of the drunken horse we fall off. The other side is law or legalism. And that's the exact error. Rather than thinking, well, what we do after we're saved doesn't matter. That's thinking... Well, now that I'm saved, if I'm going to stay in good graces with God, I have to keep obeying everything perfectly. I got to do everything right. And when we err in that way, 
we then also go to one of two extremes. We either burn out because it's impossible. No one in their own strength can be a perfect Christian. And so we get frustrated and we quit. Or we set up only external rules and we become Pharisees and look down our noses at others. We don't have the grace that says, but for the grace of God, the humility that says, but for the grace of God, go I. Jerry Bridges stated the correct balance well by saying, on your worst days, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Each day we need to come to the cross and realize there we find mercy, forgiveness, and hope. You know, we don't come each day just to beat ourselves up so we can feel morbid about ourselves, about how we're still sinful. You know, we come because at the cross we find forgiveness. And more than that, we see that we find transformation. You know, Jesus said the more we realize our debt of sin... And the more we realize his forgiveness of it, the more we'll love him. And that's really why it's tragic, because sadly, many Christians, many churches are moving away from talking about sin. I was reading an article this week of a pastor, a well-known pastor in the United States, and as he was being interviewed, he said, you know, I don't really use the word sinner. When I go to church, I just, and I get people to come, I just want to tell them how you can change. Not only that, as he talks, you can listen. He doesn't really ever talk about any clear idea of God. It's just this kind of generic God. There's almost no mention of Christ. There's almost no mention of the cross. And yet many people go, well, look, you could go to his statement of faith. He still says, you have to believe in Jesus. He forgives your sins. But the problem is, what we have fallen into in our culture is we think, well, yes, Jesus is great to be saved, but then you really need something else to kind of make it through every day. What you really need every day is kind of an emotional pick-me-up. You need someone to come along and encourage you, tell you how great you are. You need a life coach to come in and motivate you. That's, that's what you need each week. And yet Jesus is saying, no, what you need for this next week is to realize how great God is, how fall, far short we fall, but yet how he comes and cancels that gap between us. You know, our deepest need is to daily gaze at Christ and be transformed at his feet. And so we have to ask, what sins have we confessed and repented of lately? You know, for many people, repentance and confession, those are kind of horrible words. We want to kind of steer away from those. But those are life-giving words. Because if you truly repent and confess, you don't end just looking at yourself. You end looking at Christ. That's true repentance. If you're still just morbidly beating yourself up for your sins, you haven't really repented. You're only halfway there. And when you're at the feet of Jesus, you daily soak up the love that will flow out in your life to God and to others. And yet, sadly, not only have we shifted away from, even in our churches, talking of how we are sinners and there's a wonderful Savior, we've slowly redefined and mitigated sin. You know, first we kind of reduce our sin by thinking it's only external actions. And then there's certain taboos we shouldn't do. You know, you don't, not necessarily agreeing this, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you know, you don't go to movies, you don't do all these things. And well, that's very easy to maintain that list. But that's not the holiness God calls us to. 
He calls us to love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. He wants new desires for Him. And no one can live that out in their life. And so when we make sin only external, well, you can keep the external list for a while. And then you don't really need Jesus. But when you realize God calls for internal love, well, I need Him every day because my desires are a wreck. Well, second, we reduce the seriousness of sin by excusing it away. Well, yes, I know she's being really rude right now, but she's just like her aunt. That's just how our family is. <laughs> well, just because your family has certain tendencies and we all have sinful tendencies, that doesn't make it okay. That means you need to lean against them more. It's not okay that your family acts this way. Or, you know, I'm really sorry I blew up at you, but I was just really tired. Okay, well, being tired gives you a greater tendency to sin, but that doesn't make it okay that you did sin. And third, we can reduce the seriousness of our sin when we start using psychological descriptions to minimize it. Now, I could be prone to be misunderstood, so please hear what I have to say here. Your psychology has given us many wonderful things. They have great insights. And yet, to me, I keep hearing more and more what was at one time extremes that were dealt with in the psycho psychological community now as norms. You know, PTSD is a wonderful way of understanding what's gone through men and women in war or in other dramatic situations. It's not as helpful a description for your child who just lost a game. Yes, it's a traumatic situation. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, yesterday her Barbie was destroyed, so she's having a little PTSD today. No, it's not okay. Her PTSD over her lost Barbie does not give her an excuse to go, I'm going to be a little tyrant today. Or, you know, children never really disobey anymore. They're just oppositionally defiant. They have oppositional defiant disorder. Okay, well, on a spectrum, are there some children who are more defiant than others? There's no doubt. But is that merely some psychological descriptor or is there something deeper, a rebellion against God, that then leads into rebellion against others? You know, in the past, if someone was always needing things to go their way, we would say, you have an issue of needing to be in control. And you need to trust God that you don't have to control everything. But now we don't say that, you just have OCD, it's okay, I'm just OCD. Ha <laughs> that excuses me for having to demand everything go my way. No, it doesn't. It's sin. We can't use these psychological labels to just, oh, I'm OCD, don't worry about me. No. Being a type A personality does not allow you to be, well, I, I have to follow a list. Being type B, going, well, that's okay, I don't really care about order and structure. Well, no, those are descriptors, they're helpful. I'm glad people have studied and understand them, but my concern is we've used those labels to then say, but so my actions, they're really not that serious. And Jesus is saying, no. Our actions are serious. They give us a debt with God that can only be taken care of by cancellation. Not by harder work, not by becoming more religious, but by me taking the cost and canceling it for you. And so my goal here is that we would all see and savor Christ. But you won't see and savor Him, Jesus is saying, until you see the depth of your sin. As Thomas Watson said, Till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And once Christ is sweet, then his love will flow out of you to him and to others. 
Well, let me conclude with this story. You may have heard of it. There was once an archbishop of Paris, and there they had a beautiful cathedral. And in this cathedral, there was one very large painting of the crucifixion. And he would lead people on tours, and he would often stop them at this huge picture of the crucifixion. And he would tell them, there's actually a story behind this painting. You know, in this town once, there's a gang. And this gang, to be initiated into it, what you had to do is you had to come with the gang and stand in front of this picture. And whoever was walking through the cathedral, you had to look at the picture and say, Jesus, you died for my sins, and I don't give a fill in the blank. And so that one day, this young boy, he wanted to be part of the gang, so he came in, and he stood in front of the picture, and he wanted to be in the gang. So he looked at the picture, he said, Jesus, you died for my sins, and I don't give a... And he stopped, and he couldn't say it. And then the archbishop said, and now he stands here before you today. You know, as he came to see at the cross of Christ, he died. He gave his life for me. It then changed him. So he couldn't say he didn't care. It completely changed his life. So he now wanted to serve him. And so this passage is calling us to question, who is Jesus? And Jesus is showing us he is the God who offers not condemnation, nor condoning your sin. Instead, he says, I will cancel your sin. And I will take it on myself. I'll bear the cost. So you might have forgiveness. So you might have peace with God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you help us to see our sin. Not to beat ourselves up. But because then we can run to you. Find refuge and help in our time of need. Find forgiveness and mercy in our guilt. Lord, may we delight in you more each day. May we daily run to you and be at the foot of your cross. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.